The old pilot's plain tales. The ugly ducklings. A listener warning comes with this episode in that those with heart conditions and keeping to a low sodium diet should listen with caution as this tale needs to be taken with a large pinch of salt. The saying is an English idiom that suggests something may be misleading or unverified and should be viewed with scepticism. It is suspected to originate with the ancient Romans, specifically Pliny the Elder's Naturalis Historia, regarding the efficacy of a recipe for a poison antidote. Whilst we're discussing quaint idioms, many of us trust that old American adage, if it looks good, it'll fly good, attributed to both Neil Armstrong and Bill Lear, and is something that all pilots understand. There is something about a fine-looking aircraft that makes it appear trustworthy and gives one confidence that it will perform well. Sadly, I know of one company who seem to have looked at their aircraft through bottle-bottom glasses, or perhaps they just never got the memo. Whether the Short brothers were actually vertically challenged or not isn't made clear, but I can tell you that they started their aviation careers in the balloon business, where flyers of Lilliputian proportions might be an advantage, developing and manufacturing said lighter-than-air craft in Hove, Sussex, which I find rather amusing. The nautical term Hove 2 means to hold in a stationary position with head to the wind, since that feat is physically impossible for a balloon in free flight, perhaps they would have been better finding a place called Crash Land or similar. I, I digress. They built balloons for the British Army in India and for Charles Rolls of Rolls-Royce to compete in the 1906 Gordon Bennett Balloon Race. So far, only Eustace and Oswald were involved, but when they branched out into aircraft manufacture, they persuaded Horace to join them and were soon taking orders for gliders. By 1909, they had moved to the Isle of Sheppey, where they began building licensed copies of the Wright Flyer. It was here that they began to build machines in both large numbers and doubtful elegance, including a tailless twin-engine design, the Dunn D5, spelt with an E on the end, so for my Aussie mates, let's call it a Dunny. It would be wrong of me to claim that ugly aircraft came solely from the workshops of shorts, at that time, hardly any of the boxy, string-and-canvas flying machines could be described as beautiful. During the First World War, Short set to and created the Admiralty Type 184 for the Navy, which became the first aircraft to sink a ship with a torpedo. The gangly biplane had a span considerably longer than the fuselage, requiring a large vertical stabiliser to make up for the short moment arm, but the Royal Naval Air Service seemed happy enough to order 936 of them. 
The brothers' success required them to expand their business, so they bought a plot of land on the River Medway, not far from Borstal, a name famous for the prison and youth offenders' institution which still stands there. Another site they obtained became home for a pair of enormous hangars when shorts were engaged to build very long things, airships. Their work at Cardington proved successful, and they even built a local town for their workers, Shortstown, where presumably everyone wore short breeches. After building such monster dirigibles such as the R-31 and R-32, the enterprise was nationalised in 1919, just in time for the R-101 airship disaster, ensuring that the Royal Airship Works, as it was then known, bore all the fallout. I have discovered that Shorts Cardington had a works magazine, appropriately named the Gas Bag, for all the airship and balloon enthusiasts out there. We leave World War I with the Short S-38, probably for the best, and move rapidly on to the Second World War and the magnificent Short Sunderland. Its predecessors, the Singapore and Calcutta, were similar to the PBY Catalina in looks, an aircraft I admire enormously, but I can't say I hold the shorts version in the same high esteem. The enclosed cockpit looks like an upturned dumpster. It has a plethora of fins, certainly more than you would need to herd a herd of reindeer, and it sports open gun positions, presumably because all the poor gunners were taken from the other ranks and not the officer corps. The four Rolls-Royce Kestrel engines mounted in long pods and fixed onto the wing struts, two pushing and two pulling, look strangely like an afterthought, as if the engine designer was late to the meeting and didn't get his point across. There were variations on a theme with the larger Kent flying boat, which, being a civil aircraft, did without the gunner's freezing hole in the roof, and added a couple of extra engine pods, but no more engines, holding Bristol Jupiter 9-cylinder radials. Then came the even bigger Short Empire flying boats, which had been ordered by Imperial Airways. This was a big machine, about the size of a sperm whale, although it looked more like a blue whale. The whale's wings, however, were considerably smaller, and with its additional weight, it was rarely seen in the air, but both had blowholes, although in the Empire flying boat they were usually called the captain. Shorts flogged them to Qantas, and a few went to the New Zealand-Tasmanian Empire Airways Limited, as well as Imperial, which was on its way to becoming the British Overseas Aircraft Corporation. As the Empire was being built, so was the Sunderland flying boat. I can't be too rude about the Sunderland, or my dear departed father will come back to haunt me, but here are a few interesting facts. It was originally intended for it to have a cow mounted in the bow. Having a cow in the bow may seem a little strange. 
Perhaps, you think, it was intended to moo during low-visibility approaches or provide fresh milk for the captain's tea. But in fact, it was a Coventry Ordnance Works 37mm cannon. In fact, the single-cow cannon was not part of the final design. It ended up with 16.303 Browning machine guns, four fixed in the nose for the captain to play with, two in the nose turret, four in the rear turret, two in the dorsal turret, plus various beam and a rear ventral flexible gun positions as well. If you didn't want the 303s, a pair of half-inch cannons could replace a couple of waist-mounted guns. In addition, it could carry nearly 5,000 pounds, 2,250 kilograms, of bombs, mines and depth charges that were run out on rails from the fuselage to hang below the wings. The Sunderland was broadly similar to the whale-like Imperial and supposed to be more aerodynamic, but in reality there was little to choose between them. However, the Sunderland had a much improved maximum all-out weight, six extra tonnes, and in addition it sported a twin kerosene pressure stove in the galley, a machine shop for in-flight repairs, six bunks, and a porcelain flush toilet. Like whales, it suffered from barnacles on its bottom, which sometimes got so bad it could prevent a fully loaded aircraft from getting airborne. The easy cure was to take the aircraft to a freshwater mooring for long enough to kill off the fauna and flora growing beneath its large waistband. The Sunderland was a most successful maritime patrol aircraft and 749 were built and operated by many countries' air forces. I could say a lot more, but I have several less beautiful short endeavours to mention. Shortly before the start of World War II, Shorts moved to Belfast and teamed up with a shipbuilding company to form Short and Harland. Whether it was the new partner's influence or not, they were soon building bombers for the RAF, one of which was the Bombay. Perhaps the least said about that, the better. But then along came the short Sterling. It was a four-engine heavy bomber built to meet a strange set of ministry requirements, like able to lift off in 500 feet and clear a 50-foot tree, a maximum wingspan of 100 feet so it could fit inside a standard RAF hangar and carry over 6 tonnes of bombs 2,000 miles. The original design didn't meet many of those requirements, although its span was 99 feet and 1 inch. Its takeoff roll was so long, it received considerable criticism from those who flew it. It was too late to change the wing's angle of incidence, so it was decided to extend the length of the main undercarriage, giving it a most ungainly appearance and resulting in its spindly gear contributing to many takeoff and landing accidents. It did, however, do sterling work, carrying up to 14,000 pounds of bombs, nearly 6.5 tonnes, for 2,300 miles, more than three times the usual load of the Flying Fortress. 
During the war, it delivered 27,000 tons of bombs on 14,500 sorties. 582 out of the 2,371 built were lost in action. Post-war designs by Shorts continue to disregard any desire to bow to aesthetics in their designs even when entering the jet age with the Shorts-Sperrin Gyron medium bomber. It also continued a myth that the Navy preferred blunt aircraft when it built the short Seamew. The handling characteristics of the Seamew were awful, and although some improvements were made, Arthur Piercy wrote, Only the short brother's test pilot, Wally Runciman, seemed able to outwit its vicious tendencies and explore its latent manoeuvrability to the limit. Then, in the 1950s, came Short's long-awaited masterpiece. If you were going to build a new commercial aircraft, the shape of which was based on a caravan, a travel trailer in other languages, I can think of a few that might serve, like the Airstream. Indeed, the Airstream was based on a design by the man who designed and oversaw the construction of the Spirit of St. Louis, instead of which along came the short SC-7 Skyvan. Apparently, it was a development of the Hurl Dubois Miles 106 Caravan. Why two companies would want to pursue this awful idea escapes me, but Shorts decided to build their own version and somehow managed to make a boxy aircraft even boxier. The Skyvan was a twin-engined, all-metal, high-wing, high-aspect-ratio braced monoplane. Its box-shaped, unpressurized, square-section fuselage sported a pair of rectangular fins which made it easier to work out which way it flew, since the rear was pointier than the front. It started off with a pair of Continental piston engines, but moved on to a pair of Turbo Mecha Astazoo turboprop helicopter engines, more in keeping with its speed range. However, the Astazoo was temperature-limited at altitude, but who wanted to take this unpressurised cube over 10,000 feet? It's not clear, but some brave person established a service ceiling of 22,500 feet. Its maximum speed was 175 knots, but it was much happier cruising along at 150. With a range of only 602 nautical miles, it needed frequent fuel stops, but could land almost anywhere with a 2,000-foot strip. Rarely has an aircraft received so many derogatory nicknames as this winged box car, but the flying shoebox seems popular, as does the two-tailed shed, the horse float, the milk carton, Winnebago, box car, short van, box, shoebox, barn, shed, long short, the box that the sky van came in, and my favourite, the Irish Concorde. 
the sales team either shrugged off such derogatory insults or perhaps embraced them because 149 of this flying piece of garden storage were sold and operated in various government services in 22 countries. A number of them were also used by civil operators, most commonly to jump out of, which is quite understandable. Most people were probably very keen to get out. Two skyvans were used in the Argentinian conflict over the Falkland Islands, one being destroyed at Stanley Racecourse by naval gunfire, and the other got bogged down on Pebble Island and was put out of its misery by a British raiding party. Argentina also put these simple aircraft to an appalling use in 1977 during a dark period in the country's history known as the Dirty War. The military junta used their skyvans for the infamous death flights where thousands of victims were murdered by being thrown out of the aircraft into the river plate. On a happier note, Shorts didn't stop with just the Skyvan. They produced nine different versions, which even included a deluxe all-passenger version called the Serial Box. Uh, I'm sorry, I mean the Skyliner. The Skyvan was developed into the Shorts 330 and 360, which even looked a bit pointy at the front. From the 360, came the Shorts C-23 Sherpa. There is even a Super Sherpa, and this quirky little aircraft, boxier than a Volvo, even found its way into the inventory of the US military, serving with the Air Force, Army and National Guard. The company that the Short Brothers formed has been a very successful enterprise that went from balloons to missiles, armoured vehicles, and even an experimental variable geometry single-seat fighter, albeit with plywood wings. The pinnacle of their success, however, is summed up for me by the amazing Pink Skyvan. There is a statue to remind us of the Short Brothers' achievements at the site of their Muswell Manor factory on the Isle of Sheppey, which Interestingly, reminds me of a certain genre of movie wherein the population is resurrected to wander the earth in an apocalypse of zombies. Or perhaps that's just me. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're enjoying listening to these episodes, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.